Uh, Lord God, thank you so much again that we can come here and read your word together, Lord. I ask that you would uh, help us to have open hearts and open ears and that we would be uh, yeah, just in a place that we're, that we're able to, to hear from you, Lord, and to understand what you're saying to us, Lord, and to appreciate your love for us. And I ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Romans chapter 5. The first four chapters of Romans has been like, I think, pretty heavy stuff. Like we said at the start, you can't appreciate the answer unless you know what the question is. And the answer is justification by faith through Jesus. What's the question? How do we get saved? Yeah, basically, why was that necessary? Why is it necessary for us to be justified by faith through Jesus? And <clears throat> that's what Paul's been explaining to us, which hasn't, like I said, it's not been fun. It's heavy. That was chapters 1, 2, and the start of chapter 3. We're all guilty of sin, no matter how hard you've tried, no matter how hard you try, and no matter how good you look on the outside, that no one can be or will be justified according to the law, um, justified being declared righteous. And so then in chapter 3, Paul tells us what the answer is, what the solution is. Rather than justifying us based on his law, God will justify us based on his grace. More specifically, if we believe in him, if we choose to trust him, then he will give us his righteousness, which should be astonishing like that is not something that anybody would ever have guessed the solution to be that god was going to give us his righteousness but that is the gospel that's the truth that sets us free and it's that truth that um <clears throat> caused martin luther to exclaim that i felt as though i had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise just as intensely as I had hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. Previously, he'd seen the righteousness of God as being something that made him, that made him unworthy and meant he was going to be judged and condemned. But when he realized that what Paul was talking about when he talked about the righteousness of God, it's that God's righteousness is what was going to be given to us to make us righteous. And when he realized that and understood that, it said he, it opened heaven to him. So then in chapter 4, Paul showed that, that this isn't a new idea, that this isn't a new way to be saved, that this is the only way to be saved and it's the only way that anybody ever has been saved, was the point in chapter 4. So that was the first four chapters of the book of Romans. The focus was justification. Do you guys remember what justification means? Yeah, I remember what it means, but it's hard to describe by definition. It's not that hard if you remember what it means. In that case, I probably don't. <laughs> the, the simple definition is it's to, to declare righteous to be declared righteous you're justified you're you're declared to be just 
or righteous. So when we say justified or justification, what we're talking about is how it is that we are to be declared righteous. When we stand before God and are judged, that the judgment is you are righteous. That's justified. Yeah? So justified means? To be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. So that's been the focus, Paul's focus for the last four chapters. How is it that we are going to be, how is it that God is going, how is it that God can justify us? How is he going to declare us righteous? But in a sense, that's kind of looking backwards, right? Unless, of course, you haven't, uh, haven't chosen to trust God for your justification yet, then it's still looking forward for you. But assuming that you have, assuming that you've chosen to identify yourself with Jesus, to place your life and your future in his hands, and to trust him to save you, uh, not based on anything that you do yourself, but based purely on his goodness and grace through his sacrifice on the cross, then that's all past. If you remember, Paul says, you have been justified. It's past tense. You have been declared righteous. You have been saved. It's completed, finished, done. Yeah? So up to chapter five, the first four chapters, what Paul's talking about for us as believers is all actually in the past. It's how it was that God justified us. Now he's going to, in chapter five, start looking forward. Since that is the case, since we have been declared righteous, what does that mean for us? Like, what do our lives look like now that we're justified? And so in other words, Paul's focus shifts from justification to sanctification, from how God was going to declare us righteous to how God was going to begin to make us more righteous, which is sanctification. And so as a consequence, things in, from chapter five on, they actually get, it gets a lot lighter and brighter and more glorious. Uh, we're not just relieved because of what we've been saved from, which is really the focus of the four, first four chapters. We're now like, <clears throat> what? We have hope and joy and excitement about what we've been saved to. Uh, and the the expectation of a glorious future that we can look to, that we can find joy in regardless of our circumstances. And so that's what's going to happen or what's going to start happening in chapter 5. Who wants to read? Anybody? Corbin, do you want to read this morning? Everybody's mics on mute today. Okay, I'll read then. So, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Okay, so let's break that down. Paul starts with, since we have been declared righteous or been justified, since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith. 
Notice again that this is in the past tense, right? We have been justified. We have been declared righteous, which means that right now we are justified, right? We are, as far as God is concerned, righteous. How have we been declared righteous? What does it say? By faith. By faith. So not by the law, but by faith. And Paul isn't trying to point. Pr Paul isn't trying to prove this point any more. Like he's done that comprehensively over the last four chapters. And so now <clears throat> he is treating treating it as assumed and moving on. Since we have been declared righteous, what are the consequences? What are the practical benefits for us in our lives? And so firstly, Paul says, we have peace with God. We are at peace with him. Paul discusses this quite a lot more in his letter to the Colossians. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And you were at one time strangers and enemies in your minds through your evil deeds. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy, without blemish and blameless before him. So previously, through our sins, he says, through your evil deeds, we had made ourselves enemies of God. We were in rebellion against him. And Paul, as much as anybody understood this, remember how it was that God found him. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest believers in Jesus. He'd just finished overseeing the, the murder of Stephen, one of Jesus' disciples. And remember what it was that Paul, that, that Jesus said to Paul when he met Paul on the road. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, Saul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Paul illustrates this beautifully, right? He literally was an enemy of Jesus at the time that Jesus called him. But according to that passage in Colossians, we were at one time all enemies of Jesus, all enemies of God fighting against him. And God was under righteous obligation to separate himself from us and to, to punish us for the hurt and destruction that we cause through our lives, to judge us and condemn us for rejecting the truth and for rejecting him as our creator. But Jesus removed that obligation by dying on our behalf, by taking our punishment for us, he freed God to justify us by his grace without compromising his righteousness. And that's what Paul talked about in Romans 3.26, that Jesus made it possible for God to be both just and the justifier of those who believe in him so that he can justify, he can declare righteous the, the unrighteous who believe in him without compromising his justness, his righteousness. And so now, we, know, we are no longer enemies of God. We have peace with Him, which is what He says here. 
We don't have to fear his judgment anymore. We're protected from his wrath. That's something that Paul's going to talk a lot more about in chapter 8. And having, having been justified, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God and are at peace with him. Then he says, we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand. The picture behind the term access is of being introduced into the throne room of a king, right? And if you remember the story of Esther, hopefully you guys are familiar with that story, um, you'll have some sense of the significance of this because Esther was queen of Persia, right? Yet not even she was able to approach the king uninvited. But what Paul is saying here is we have been invited, we have been invited in, we've been introduced to the king, and we've been given access to the throne of God. And the, <clears throat> again, the tense there is perfect, it's, it's, it's past, it's completed. We have access permanently to the throne of God, which is why the writer in Hebrews can say, therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. We can boldly approach God's throne because we've been given access to it. We're allowed there kind of thing. And then Paul says, <clears throat> we have access through God's grace in which we stand. And the idea there is that God's grace isn't a one-off thing. We aren't saved by God's grace. And then we have to maintain our position, maintain our access to the throne of God through the law. As Paul said to the church in Galatia, he said, You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Are you so foolish? Although you began in the spirit, are you now trying to finish in the flesh? So no, as Paul will explain in the coming chapters, we are dead to the law. It no longer has any relevance in our lives or to our lives. We stand and we continue to stand in God's grace. Moment by moment and day by day. And there's something really quite wonderful about that because God has mercy on us, right? What does mercy mean? Mercy is not getting what you should deserve in terms of like punishments or whatever. So that's like if you do deserve, say, to be smacked or whatever, you, you won't get that. That's mercy. Right. <clears throat> mercy is not getting what you deserve. When you deserve punishment, it's not punishing you. Has God shown us mercy? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. God's shown us mercy. Now, you can kind of imagine a king doing that, right? Showing mercy to his enemies, not executing them, say. Allowing them to live. But allowing them to live as what? Like maybe a dishonorable peasant in his kingdom? Or like a servant of the king? But that's not the case with God. We don't stand... It's not in God's mercy that we stand. It's in his grace that we stand. We're not just forgiven. We're blessed. Right? We're brought into the family of God and elevated to heights that we cannot even comprehend in 
to the Ephesians, Paul writes, to me less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the incomprehensible riches of Christ. That's amazing. God doesn't just forgive us, right? I won't punish you, but then leave you down there. We live our lives completely submerged, bathed in the undeserved blessings of God, the grace of God. We stand in his grace. We're given the spirit of God, which again, like, if you understand what that means to have God living in you, knowing who you are, that's, that's, you, you can't even understand that. And all of it comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus who became sin for us that we have this peace with God, that we've been given access to God's throne room, to the grace with, within which we stand. Um, and it is also through Jesus that we rejoice in the hope of God's glory, that we have joy knowing that we will see God's glory and that we will be in God's glory forever. Now, it's worth noticing, or yeah, it's worth understanding something about the term hope. When we understand hope, we tend to think of something that is, it's something that we want, but that's uncertain, right? It's kind of like wishful thinking. I hope that that will happen, but you kind of think it might not. That's not the way that hope is used in the Bible. In the Bible, hope is a confident expectation. It's not just something that you want to happen, something that you desire to happen. It's something that you expect to happen. And not just that you expect to happen, that you are confident will happen. Why, why can or why is hope in the Bible something that we can be sure of? Something that is certain, not uncertain, do you think? Any thoughts? Because I assume in your lives, when you talk about things that you hope for, these are not things that you're confident in. These are things that you hope for, right? But when the Bible uses the term hope, that's not what it's talking about. It's, it's talking about things you, you know will happen. What's the difference? Generally, when you're talking about things that you hope for, these are things that are not really in your control. And the difference is those things that you're hoping for in the Bible rely on nothing less than the faithfulness of God. The reason we can be certain in the hopes that we have or the hope that is given to us in the Bible is because of the person in whom that hope relies. It's God. And God is certain, and so the promises that he makes to us, the things that we hope for and hope in are certain too. And so that's why Paul says in Romans 15, 
Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about this more very, very shortly, but hope is like a foundational characteristic. It's something that God wants to develop in all of us. It, he wants it to be the foundation of our lives, that we live in hope, but not in this like wishful thinking hope, but in a confident expectation so that we can have joy and peace in our lives. So Paul's going to talk about that. Now, Romans 4, uh, Romans 5 verses 3 and 3 to 5. He says, not only this, not only what? Not only that we have, uh, what? Rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Not only do we rejoice in the God, in the hope of God's glory, we also rejoice in suffering. I don't know how many of you guys rejoice in suffering. But apparently, according to Paul, we rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, so this is actually such an interesting and important and relevant point. There's a large part of the church today who that preaches that health, wealth, and prosperity comes to those who trust in Jesus. That if you have enough faith in God, he will bless you in this life. Now, Paul has just been talking all about the grace of God and the blessings and inheritance that await um, or that belong to the children of God. And he knew how people would twist that teaching uh, to suggest that the life of a believer was going to be all like sweetness and life and filled with only good things. But that is not at all what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, remember what I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Peter said, Paul said, got them mixed up. Oh, we'll see. Paul said, for it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For what? For suffering. For persecution. In fact, when we were with you, we were telling you in advance that we would be persecuted. And so it happened, as you well know. Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised that a fiery trial is occurring among you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. So you see, we're told to expect suffering in our lives. And Paul wasn't speaking in theory either, like he knew this by experience. To the Corinthians, he said, are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like I am out of my mind. I am even more so. With much greater labors, I've worked harder than all of them with far more imprisonments, with more severe beatings, 
facing death many times. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I received a stoning. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I spent adrift in the open sea. I have been on journeys many times, in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my own countrymen, in dangers from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers at sea, in dangers from false brothers, in hard work and toil, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, many times without food, in cold and without enough clothing. Paul knew what it was to suffer. And God, God does not promise us a life that is free from suffering and filled with like material comfort. If you have that, great, enjoy it. But don't think that it's an essential feature of the Christian life or a sign that God is pleased with you. And if you're not experiencing that, if you are suffering in some way or in many ways, don't think that means God is unhappy with you. When God speaks about his blessings, he, his perspective is far bigger than this short life that we're living now. His desire is for your eternal blessing. And in the context of eternity, this life is nothing. It's a breath. The hope, the promise is that you will be rewarded eternally for the hardships that you endure in this life. James said the one who endures trials is blessed because when he has been proven genuine, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. Later in Romans 8, Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. We've talked about this before. And if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God and also fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. And to the Corinthians, he says, therefore, we do not despair, but even if our physical body is wearing away, our inner person person is being renewed day by day. I, I love that wording. Like It's like our body is getting older and older and older and dying, but our inner person is getting younger and younger and younger the older you get, which is kind of, kind of amazing. It's kind of like Benjamin Button, if you know that movie. But anyway, uh, and then he says, our momentary life light suffering. That's all the things he was just talking about, right? being beaten, being stoned, being left in the sea, having no food and clothing. He says, our momentary, our temporary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That is why he could consider all of those things light suffering because he knew that in comparison to the, the rewards that he was earning in heaven, it was meaningless. So it's really important to, to understand that suffering in life can raise all sorts of questions in our hearts, but the one thing it shouldn't do is cause you to question the trustworthiness of God's word because, because that is exactly what God tells us to expect in our lives in his word.
Like Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble and suffering, but take courage, I have conquered the world. So, okay, we shouldn't be surprised by suffering, right? Because the Bible tells us to expect suffering. But that's not what Paul said. He didn't say don't be, we, we aren't surprised by suffering. Paul said that we should rejoice in our suffering. How do you do that? Well, he says, by knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. So, suffering produces endurance or patience. That is why people say that it's so dangerous to pray for patience because the way that you develop patience is apparently through suffering. And so if you're praying for patience, then you are in fact praying for... Suffering. Suffering, yeah. But is this your experience? Do you find that the... Do you find yourselves more patient when things are going badly? Charles Spurgeon said, Tribulation worketh patience, says the apostle. Naturally, it is not so. Tribulation worketh impatience, and impatience misses the fruit of experience and sours into hopelessness. Ask many who have buried a dear child or have lost their wealth or have suffered pain of body and they will tell you that the natural result of affliction is to produce irritation against providence. Basically, you're angry with God when he blesses you because like, he's caused you to suffer so badly. Uh, rebellion against God, questioning, unbelief, petulance and all sorts of evil. But what a wonderful alteration takes place when the heart is renewed by the Holy Spirit. So, naturally, suffering doesn't produce endurance or patience. It produces anger and bitterness, which uh, very often leads to even more suffering um, in our hearts and in the lives of the people around us. But if we choose to cast our burdens onto the Lord, to rely on God's Spirit to give us strength, and to trust Him in our suffering, to Sing as David did that the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, and I trust in him. He is my shield and my horn of salvation, my high tower. If we can do that in the midst of our suffering, then we will grow in patient endurance. Then we will find that what Paul has said here is true, that suffering produces endurance but patience or endurance is not the goal that's not what god's after he doesn't want a, a people who can stoically like showing no emotion or feeling like just suffer through whatever they're experiencing that's not the goal that's just the first step then he says that if we do that, if we practice endurance, if we practice patience uh, in the midst of suffering, grounded in a trust in God, then Paul says that that endurance will produce character. Now, 
When I was growing up, whenever I complained about something, my parents would say, it builds character. Do any of you guys, have any of you heard that from your parents? Yep. Yeah, it builds character. In fact, sorry. Huh? huh? Oh, nothing, sorry. So in fact, one day they actually found this Calvin and Hobbes cartoon and they mounted it on cardboard and stuck it on my door and I came home to find this. So being cold builds character. <laughs> turns out turns out they weren't wrong, right? They were basically just quoting Paul, who said that suffering endured with the right attitude builds character. Now, of course, I don't know that I was suffering with the right attitude, so I'm not sure how much character it built in me, but that's beside the point. Apparently, if you endure with the right attitude, trusting in God, that will build character. What is character? Oh, personality, personality, any kind of personality, probably a, a better personality than most a stronger one, a stronger one. Yeah. Right, like, Is that a hand up, Eden? Have you got yeah. an answer? Yeah. Go for it. Um, it's the tools that you need to kind of get through life. When you have character, that means you're resilient and perseverant and stuff. So, yeah. Good answer. Anybody got something to add? So it probably builds strength of like your moral resolve. It, it builds sort of your resilience as a person. That's good. You guys all have a much better understanding of character than I had when I was growing up. I didn't know what they're talking about. Anyway, the word the word that's translated character here in um, Greek literally means to be tested and proven true, trustworthy. Like you are, yeah, trustworthy. And there's some synonyms for character, integrity, honor, moral strength, moral fiber, fortitude, backbone. It's the quality of being strong and dependable, even in difficult circumstances, of being the kind of person that other people can rely on when they're struggling. That's the kind of person that God wants to build you into, right? That through your suffering, you might become a stronger more faithful, more dependable person, so that <clears throat> rather than making the suffering worse, you're the kind of person who can actually help carry other people's burdens, the loads that they're carrying, that through whatever it is that you're suffering, God could actually, God's light can shine through you and lighten the world around you, and that your light isn't darkened by the fact that you're struggling in life. That even in the midst of that struggling, you're the kind of person who can shine God's light forth. That's what he wants. That's character. But that's still not the end, right? That's not the climax of, spir of spiritual maturity. 
Paul says that character produces hope, and hope is where it's at. Hope is confidence in the future over the present. Hope allows you to not only endure hardship, right, which is the start, but as Paul said, to rejoice in it. Because through experience, you will have found God to be true when he said that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now notice it doesn't say that all things will be good for those people. As we've already said, we are not promised that in this life. We live in a fallen world where tragedy and suffering is like just a part of life. And there's nothing, there's nothing that suggests that Jesus' followers will be shielded from that reality, that their lives will be any less painful than the people around them. And in fact, there's at least some passages that would suggest that our suffering might be worse. Because not only do we have to live in this fallen world, we are also on the side of Jesus and we have Satan against us and the world against us. So that's not what it's saying. God is not saying here in Romans 8 that our lives are going to be all good. What it is saying is that God can use any situation for good. No matter how painful or tragic it may be at the time. And that is the hope that we have. That in our lives, God will make all things beautiful in his time. No matter how ugly they appear today. And it's in discovering that truth by experience, which is what Paul is talking about there, going through this process of suffering, endurance, character, and and then finding God to be faithful, uh, that we can then face the world, no matter how painful it may be, with hope. That we can face tribulation, suffering, without being robbed of the peace and the joy that that God wants us to have. Um, And that like Paul, we can find ourselves content in whatever our circumstances. To the Philippians, Paul wrote, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in any circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of contentment in any and every circumstance, whether I am fed or hungry, whether I have plenty or nothing, I am able to do all things through the one who gives me strength. I can't speak for you, but I certainly hope that one day that that will be true in my life, that I will know what it means to be content in any circumstance, that I will know that I can do all things through the God who loves me. But apparently it all starts with suffering. It all starts with our willingness to trust God through our suffering, uh, knowing that he will be with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, and that he will see us through it. Now, in all of this, we will find that hope does not disappoint. We've talked about this already, but why does our hope not disappoint? Because the hope, uh, well, the hope in the Bible talks about it's not like wishful thinking. It's something like in God's control. And so we know it's 
all going to be good. Yeah, it's because our hope is in God, right? And God does not disappoint. In Psalm 22, it says, To you they cried out and they were saved. In you they trusted and they were not disappointed. And in Psalm 25, David says, Certainly none who rely on you will be disappointed. Our hope is in God and so we will not be disappointed. Now Paul says that this hope will not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul hasn't spoken much about the Holy Spirit yet, right? In chapter 1, he said that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God through the Spirit of holiness. In chapter 2, he said that Jews, the people are Jews if they, not if their hearts are, what? A Jew is someone whose heart has been circumcised, not by the law, but by the Spirit. That's all Paul has said so far about the Spirit of God in the book of Romans, which is kind of amazing. We're five chapters in, or at least four chapters in. He's only mentioned him twice and only sort of a little bit vaguely. This is the first time that Paul refers specifically to him as the Holy Spirit. And it's the first time that he talks about us being given God's Spirit. But that's going to change big time when we reach chapter 8. Paul, in that chapter, in that one chapter, talks about the Holy Spirit 20 times. And he's going to explain that it is God's Spirit in us that brings us to life and gives us the power to live a life that is filled with hope and peace and joy. The power to find joy regardless of our circumstances. And that it is through God's Spirit in us that we can Rejoice in suffering. But in the meantime, Paul says that God has poured out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And it is because we have the Spirit of God in us, testifying of God's love for us, that we will not find ourselves disappointed by our hope, by our certain expectation, sure expectation in him. Okay. A few more verses. Uh, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. So d Christ died at just the right time. What does that mean? Any ideas? Is it to do with um, fulfilling the prophecy timeline? Which prophecy timeline? One in Daniel where it's the weeks and then the seven weeks and then the more weeks. Yep. So, so I suspect it means a bunch of things. And one of the things I think it means is that. So... Throughout Jesus' ministry, people tried to out him as the Messiah, right? Uh, and each time Jesus said, it's not the right time. My time has not yet come. In John 2, Jesus replied, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. That's when 
Mary wants him to make wine out of water. In John 7, Jesus' brothers are saying to him, if you're the Messiah, why don't you tell everybody? Why don't you show yourself to be the Messiah? And he says, my time has not yet arrived, but you are ready at any opportunity. And then in John 7, it says, then they tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. So all the way through Jesus' ministry, there are these opportunities where he can present or be taken and presented as the Messiah. And he steps out and says, "Uh uh-uh, it's not the right time yet. But then one day, he not only allows himself to be called the Messiah, he sets it up. He actually like plans it all out, sends his disciples to go get the donkey and rides into Jerusalem uh, with the people crying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And I believe that in doing so, Jesus was fulfilling a specific prophecy, which John or Mark, John, I think, mentioned uh, that was given to Daniel like more than 500 years earlier. Um, that he was presenting himself as the Messiah at just the right time, exactly when Daniel prophesied that he would. Uh, He also died on a specific day, right? Like, what day did Jesus die on? Of the week or of their months? Uh, Of their calendar. Passover. Passover. Jesus died on the Feast of Passover, and we've, we've talked about this before, but that also, I don't believe, was an accident, right? And in fact, the priests had decided not to arrest Jesus on the Passover. In Matthew 26, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people met together in the palace of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas. They planned to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, not on Passover, so that there won't be a riot among the people. So they had planned not to kill Jesus on Passover. But then when they're sitting up in the upper room, Jesus and his disciples celebrating the Passover, he tells Judas that he knows that Judas is going to betray him. And then Jesus said to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. And so Judas immediately left, ran to the chief priests. They rushed to get organized so they could arrest him that night. And as a consequence... Jesus died on Passover at just the right time. It was also the right time historically, and this is something we won't be able to develop, but David Gusick, a pastor in um, the US, says the world was prepared spiritually, economically, linguistically, politically, philosophically, and geographically for the coming of Jesus and the spread of the gospel. That's a whole nother conversation, but the time that Jesus came and that the gospel was uh, declared was really the perfect time for it to spread through the world. Um, And of course, it was also just the right time for us because Jesus died when we were still helpless, helpless to to help ourselves. And as Paul has made abundantly clear, powerless to save ourselves. Now, who did he die for? What does it say? The ungodly. The ungodly. 
Not for the righteous, not for the godly. Instead, Christ died for the ungodly. As Jesus said, those who are healthy don't need a doctor, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But that's kind of amazing, right? Like, who would do that? Who would die for the ungodly, the unlovable? But that's exactly the point that um, Paul is making. This is how we know that our hope in God won't disappoint because of just how deep the love of God is, which has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And Paul explains that love further in the next two verses. He says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul says here that like, sure, someone might be willing to die for a righteous person or for a good person, but that's not what we're dealing with here. Jesus didn't die for good people. Jesus died for like, for people, he didn't die for people who loved him. He died for the worst of the worst. He, he died for people who hated him, like Paul, right? And in fact, Jesus died for the very people who would kill him. You can't make that up. That's not a story that, that man could imagine. That's not a love that man can relate to. That is a superhuman, divine love demonstrated, not so much by the fact that Jesus died, but by who Jesus died for. That he died for sinners like us. And that is the unlikely but majestic gospel that Paul is presenting to us. Okay, we'll stop there. Quick summary. Paul said we have peace with God. Paul also said that we have access to God's grace. He said that we rejoice in suffering knowing that God will work all things for good in our lives and that God will build us into people of character and hope through, through that which we suffer. Our hope in God is certain. It's not going to disappoint us. And then, as he's just said, God's love is demonstrated in the fact that he died for sinners like us. Any comments, questions, thoughts? So that, that last bit almost made it sound like God didn't die for the righteous, but for them to be like, there are people who are righteous enough to get to heaven without Christ. I would say it's almost a... So he says... Well, that's actually an interesting uh, question. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly die, dare to die. Is there a difference between a righteous person and a good person? I don't know. You could read it a couple of ways. It could just be that he's repeating the point, like... It's very rare that somebody would die for a righteous or a good person, but 
perhaps for a righteous or a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. It's also possible that like the that a a righteous person is somebody who looks really holy and perhaps knows that they're really holy, whereas a good person is somebody who's like kind and benevolent, but maybe isn't as righteous kind of thing. And it's probably true that we're more willing to that we would be more willing to die for a good person than for a apparently righteous person. But I would say that the Bible earlier in Romans, Paul makes it clear that there is none righteous, no, not one, right? So he's saying, sure, maybe if there was a righteous person and for a good person, maybe somebody would, con- would be willing to die, but there, there is nobody righteous anyway, and that's not what God did. Jesus died for sinners and everybody, that's everybody, which we know from other, other passages. Anything else? Let's pray, and then we can go. Lord God, again, just praise you and thank you for your amazing, amazing love that you didn't die for just the very, very best of us, for the the best 1% or 10%. You died for sinners. You came for not for the righteous, but for, for the unrighteous, Lord that your purpose was to save the worst of the worst, to save even those who were persecuting your church, that were your enemies, and to make them your family, Lord. We thank you that we don't just stand in mercy, we stand in your grace. You haven't just forgiven us, you've showered blessings on us, Lord. You've given us privileges that we could never, we cannot comprehend. Lord, we thank you that Whatever it is that we, we suffer through in this life, we have hope, a sure and a certain hope that, there is, that, there is, that the real life is still to come and that whatever we've suffered here, all that's going to do is make that life more glorious. And I thank you that the hope that we have is not based on anything in, anything in this world but that it's based on you and your faithfulness. That you are certain, so our hope is certain. Lord, I ask that you would go with us this week and that you would make that real in our lives, Lord, that you would bring that to mind as we go through our days, when we encounter things that are struggles and frustrations and perhaps even pain, Lord, and heartache, that we would remember that our hope is not in this life, that our hope is in you that you would build in us that patient endurance and that character that makes us the kind of people you want us to be and the kind of people that can bless, the, bless those around us, regardless of our circumstances. In your name I pray and ask these things, Jesus. Amen. All right. What I think is interesting about that that last bit, the last question, mm-hmm. um, it's like the question was, 
or the statement is that the question was based off of was that God didn't die for the righteous, but that's actually not what is said in that passage. It doesn't say God didn't die for the righteous, and said he died for sinners. And it uses in verse seven what we would have done. We wouldn't have done for died for a righteous person, um, and maybe for a good person, but God trumps that and he died for all the righteous and the good and the sinners. We wouldn't have done any of that. Yeah, yeah. Steps it up another level. Because like yeah, like the righteous people, there is technically no, there, there are no righteous people, as you said. So, you know, we, he writes that as looking from our perspective, we look at the religious people and like, oh, those are righteous people. Mm. But in reality, they're not. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, he's basically trying to demonstrate the extent of God's love to show how, how large it is. And so if it was restricted only to those who are righteous and good, it would be this big. And he's saying, no, it's for everybody. Yeah. And it's like, it's, he didn't die for us once he'd already sanctified us. He died for us while we're still sinners and then sanctified us. It's not like he took the cream of the crop, took the worst of the worst, and those are who he died for. He died for everyone because we're all the worst of the worst. Yeah, yeah. and he didn't wait to see like uh, whether we would, like you say, like clean us up first, sanctify us, see if we get far enough, and then decide who, who of the sanctified are worth saving. He's saved us even before he began to sanctify us kind of thing. It's very cool. All right. What you guys got planned for your day?